Merry Christmas. I am so thankful that it is here. I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Our sermons for the last several weeks have been about hope. We've been reading the Gospel of Matthew and we've been recognizing prophecies, some of them 750 years old. Yes. And as we chase those prophecies back into their context, we see that God gave people hope. Even while we were in exile and suffering, He gave people hope that He was moving to their benefit, that one day He would work in a way that would alleviate your pain or suffering, give you hope to let you know that there is a new creation coming, to let you know that you're not alone in this. And so today, our sermon text is a Christmas sermon that I've never preached, I've never heard. In fact, I have a hunch that pastors just like me, that we avoid this text because it's heavy and it's hard. Today we're going to talk about suffering. In Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read the story of King Herod searching so much for Christ that he determined to destroy every baby in Bethlehem that was two years old and younger. For a moment, we're going to consider the pain of all the mothers and all the fathers in the city of Bethlehem. And we're going to recognize that even in the Christmas story, in the happiest story there is, there's pain. I think that Christmas is the best time of year. It is the happiest time of year. But I also bet that everybody in this sanctuary at some time or another has been sad at Christmas time. I bet you every one of us here have had a reason to grieve or suffer. And the fact that it is a holiday and the fact that everybody around us is so happy might have made it harder for you. Well, so today we're going to talk about suffering. We're going to ask, where is God in this? We're going to try to understand the nature and the character of your God and of his rescue plan for you. And I hope it gives you comfort. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful this morning as pastor to pray for my church family. Lord, I recognize good reasons for grief. Father, all through the week I've imagined moments of hardship or suffering, doubts or questions. I've thought about the pain that my brothers and my sisters are feeling or have felt. And Father, I ask today as a church family that you would be very near us today. That we would be comforted somehow by the strength of your presence, by knowing that you haven't forgotten about us. God, I pray that our anger or our questions could in time give way to your comfort. I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts as we read this story. God, that we would be respectful of real pain. And that we would find real help in you. Lord, no doubt today there are dozens who this is their Christmas of sadness. And I pray, God, that you would come to them and comfort them in a very special way today. That you would celebrate with them. That you would grieve with them. And God, that you would be their closest companion this holiday season. I ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, it's possible that the time you felt sad or when you had a heavy Christmas, that year when you were suffering or grieving, it's very possible that you might have felt guilty. I don't know if that's true or not, but some of you, you might have felt guilty for feeling sad 
at a time that was supposed to be so festive. You might have felt like you were a downer on everybody else's party, and you might have felt like that's not okay. You might have said to yourself, gosh, I feel like I'm ruining everybody's Christmas. You might have looked in the mirror and thought, what's wrong with me? You, you might have thought, Man, should I even go? I don't want to walk in and just bring everybody's countenance down. You might have felt guilty the time that you were sad at Christmas. But what I want to say in today's sermon is, don't feel guilty. I don't think God ever intends for you to feel guilty because of grief, suffering, or sadness. In fact, the opposite. When you look in the scriptures, we find that God is a comforter for those in grief. That God is your closest companion. I think God holds you in great esteem. And I think God is as interested in you as anybody else who has their festive lights strung up. I don't want you to feel guilty. Instead, for this Sunday morning, I want you to recognize that your grief is a humble reminder for everybody in the sanctuary, for everybody in the Pine Belt. In some way, your grieving actually completes the Christmas story. What I mean by that is the Christmas story would be only half full without your grieving. Because even in the story of Christ's birth, there were legitimate and real broken hearts. And in in a theological way, maybe in a pastoral way, I would say that that grieving reminds us of the reason he came, what he's coming to set us free from. But I think it's more personal and deeper than that. So I don't want to offer you any shallow colloquialisms. I'd rather that we walk through this story together. And so everybody from our children all the way up to our retirees, let's read Matthew chapter 2 together. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 and following. I'll give you a second to find it in your Bible. It's a terrible story. One of my least favorite stories in the entire Bible. Let's read it. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, you remember we talked about the Magi, they brought gifts to Christ. Herod had a plan that they would find the baby for him, the king of the Jews. He asked them to come back and let him know where Jesus could be found so he could worship him. But really, he wanted to destroy him. And he believed that the Magi was his, were his ticket. He believed the Magi would lead him to Christ. But when he realized that they were told by God in a dream to go home a different way, not to go back to Herod, now he'd been fooled and he had no hope of finding this king and removing the threat to his power and his line. Back to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. In other words, Herod asked the Magi, when did you see the star? They told him when they saw the signs in heaven. So Herod estimated in his mind that if the child had been born about that time, he could be as old as two years old. To be on the safe side, Herod wanted to destroy every baby two years old and under in this village of Bethlehem. And I cannot imagine the grief of that community this Christmas. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And here's your Old Testament prophecy that we will follow back to its roots. Jeremiah said, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing 
to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, go, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. I want everybody to read verse 18 with me again. This prophecy from Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. When you turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, it's where you'll find that story. We'll refer to it in just a few minutes. Let me give you a little background. Why was Rachel weeping and who was Rachel after all? Shortly after 2000 BC, Rachel was one of the matriarchs of the nation. She gave birth to two kids. She was the mother to Joseph. And you know about Joseph and his code in Egypt and how he saved God's people. You know about Joseph the dreamer. She was also the mother to Benjamin. I like Benjamin because I find a certain affinity with his name. Must have been a dashing young man. I'm Ben, if you don't know me. Hi, I'm Ben. She was a mother to Joseph and Benjamin. And in Jeremiah's passage... In his prophecy, she's weeping in Ramah. Why is she weeping? Well, she's long dead by the time Jeremiah is prophesying. But what does he mean? Rachel was not a stranger to pain. She knew what it was to be in love with Joseph and then watch him tricked into marrying her sister. She suffered a season of infertility and knew what it was like to, to desire a child with all her heart. Then she knew what it was like to give birth to two children. And with Benjamin, she died. She died shortly after her childbirth. In fact, she didn't want to name him Benjamin, son of the right hand. She wanted to name him son of my distress. But kind enough, his father changed the name so Benjamin wouldn't have to live with the memory that his mother died in giving him life. Rachel was buried according to Genesis chapter uh, 38, I think. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 35. Genesis chapter 35 and verse 9. Clearly it's not verse 9. Good job, Ben. I'm scanning to see if I can find it now. I typed the wrong Bible verse. How about 19? Put a 1 there. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which that is Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. In chapter 48 of Genesis, in verse 7, or at least I hope it's verse 7, the Bible says this, as I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So in the memory of the Old Testament, 
Rachel died in childbirth, giving life to Benjamin, and she was buried just outside of Bethlehem. Her tomb was there, and she died a woman in sorrow. But by the time of Jeremiah, something new was happening. In Jeremiah chapter 31, he says specifically that the voice of Rachel from the dead, weeping, is heard from the village of Ramah. Let's read Jeremiah 31 verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Why was Rachel, who's buried in Bethlehem, weeping in Ramah? Why could her voice be heard weeping in Ramah? You find the answer to that in Isaiah, in Jeremiah chapter 40. Flip your Bible a few pages forward. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. To set up this reading, I want you to know, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He was preaching during a time when Jerusalem was being destroyed. They were under siege. And then while he was preaching still and living, they were conquered. He watched his people drug off into exile. He saw clearly what would come and then he lived through it as it came. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, would understand your grief this Christmas if you're grieving. And as he wrote this text, he said, a voice is heard. That is Rachel weeping in Ramah. And why? And the answer to that is going to be found in chapter 40 of Jeremiah. You're going to read here that Jeremiah was handed over to be exiled as well. He was put in with the slaves and the prisoners and all the conquered people. And they were all gathered together at the village of Ramah because that is where the slaves from Judah were to be deported to their exile in Babylon. It was this staging and sending place for broken people who had lost their home, who'd lost their families. They watched their families killed. They heard of their fathers slaughtered. They saw their small siblings who weren't strong enough for the journey dashed against the stones and killed. These were people who knew sorrow unparalleled in their day. And they were collected in this village of Ramah. And you find that Jeremiah is found among them and then drawn out of them. In chapter 40, verse 1, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile in Babylon. So when Jeremiah was preaching, when he heard Rachel weeping in Ramah, she was weeping because she was watching her children killed, conquered, their homes burned, their siblings destroyed, their friends raped, their villages plundered. And she was watching them gathered into Ramah, losing their freedom, their hopes, their dreams. She was watching them become slaves to be sent into exile, and she was weeping. Peculiar thing in Jeremiah in the middle of the suffering, as he watches Rachel weep, refusing to be comforted, he encourages her to find comfort. Look in verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be, revealed, will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there's hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. 
as Christ comes to bring us out of exile, and as Matthew's gospel shows us this Jesus who will deliver us from our sins, he is no stranger to suffering. And as God spoke through Jeremiah and told Rachel to restrain her tears, to be comforted, to know that in the future he was working to her good, we turn the pages of our Bibles forward to the future, to Matthew, and we find her weeping again. And that raises a few questions and observations about grief about Rachel's tears, about your tears, about your suffering. And I just want to share a few of the things that I think pastorally are worth passing down in this text. I want you to imagine with me first, literally, truthfully, what would it have been like to have been in Bethlehem? To hear the moaning, the wailing, the screams as Herod's soldiers use their force their brute might to destroy our children so that some king could remain in power and sleep in peace. What would it have been like to grieve with them, to be a sibling of a child who'd been destroyed, a mother grieving a child, a grandmother watching her family line unravel, and I think about our suffering today. There's a few things that I observed. And the first one is this. Rachel weeping in Matthew chapter 2, she'd wept before. Because suffering is perpetually a part of life in every generation. Like the pain she felt twice. In Jeremiah's day, in Matthew's day, the pain you feel today, it's very real. I think about when I was a child, the impact of watching the aftermath of the Columbine school shooting and trying to imagine the pain of that and watching my little mind turned inside out as I thought, how could anybody do that? And now I watch it every month. And I think about how, how can friends go to school grieving the loss of their best friend? How can entire towns and cities hurt for the loss of their kids? I've lost friends, and you have, to suicide. And I hurt in our generation as I see families grieving because of somebody that we lost, that we think we shouldn't have lost. We've lost friends in our community over the decades to overdose. I'm angry about it. I'm hurt about it. We have every right to grieve. If we scoot back and imagine that we're Google Earth and we see that little Earth spin on your cell phone, on the other side of the globe we see children kidnapped from villages to become child soldiers in a twisted army for some rebel faction. We see young, woman, young women stolen from their homes to be traded internationally in the sex trade. We see poverty, loss, war, grief. And if you listen carefully, you might hear Rachel weeping with you. And if you listen more carefully, you might hear the comforting voice of God. Affirming to you that he does, in fact, love you. 
and that he grieves too over what he sees on his earth. Suffering's not unique to the mothers of Bethlehem, to Rachel and her children, or to you. It's a part of the Christmas story because it is a part of our world. The second thing I observed in the text is that Rachel twice grieved. In both cases, she refused to be comforted. And I want to acknowledge with everybody in the room that it is okay to grieve. In fact, grief is the appropriate response to loss and to certain experiences. I feel as if in our culture we think it's not okay to be sad, it's not okay to grieve, it's not okay to hurt. That our job is to get happy as fast as we can because it makes everybody else more comfortable. It's almost as if in the context of the American dream, we don't give one another permission to stop and hurt. But we should recognize as wise people that grief is a normal way to feel and the appropriate way to feel in some situations. I told my kids when they were little, it's okay to be sad sometimes. Sadness is a normal way to feel. And you don't have to hurry up to try to stop feeling sadness. You can slow down and be sad. And be sad with God. And let Him help you until He heals you. But it's okay to be sad. Cade understood that. Um, in fact, Cade, I, he used to say sometimes, he'd apply that to everything. If you hit your toe on something and were hurt, he'd say, It's okay. Pain's just a feeling. It's not real. Well, sadness is a feeling, but it's very real, and I acknowledge that. And as I think about Rachel refusing to be comforted, I want to say out loud in the church that it's okay to hurt in such a way that you can't be comforted today. You know, as I know, that God will heal you. You know, as I know, that in the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no more death, no more dying, no more grieving, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more greed. You know, as I know, that in God's big plan, grief will cease. But I want to tell you that it's okay to hurt in a way that today you can't be comforted. To know that God can heal you in the long term. To know that God can bring you comfort. But I think it's honest and okay to grieve in such a way that you have no other expression except to say you hurt. And I can recognize how if I rush to you in your grief and try to cheer you up, you should appropriately say, Ben, stop. Not now. Not now. Try again next week, but not, not now. You lose a mother. You lose a child. You suffer grief sometimes on a level where you should have permission to be alone and hurt. But what I want you to know is that you're not alone. Even in your grief, you're grieving with God. And if I can do one thing in this sermon, it's that I want you to know that you can grieve with God's company. That He came among us to be a high priest to us. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible tells us that He suffered so that He could understand and be a good high priest to you in your trials and temptations. And I just want us to acknowledge there's a moment where our best move would be to learn from the good season of Job's seven friends. Job's, seven, Job's three friends. For seven days, Job's three friends came and sat with him and grieved and said nothing. 
And then they began to talk and everything unraveled from there. But there's a time when the only comfort I can offer is my presence and my love. And I know that I'll be here. But I understand that there is some grief that is deep enough that you just need permission to grieve. So you have it. Grieve. But know that just as God spoke through Jeremiah, there's a time for you to dry your tears and to recognize that God's plan is working salvation for you and for us and for the world. And you can find hope in that. So that you would grieve, but not grieve as the world grieves. Don't grieve as one who has no hope. Our hope is in Christ. The third thing I want to pass to you today. I wondered, would the mothers and fathers in Bethlehem blame God? When we grieve, we blame God. In fact, in our generation, there are a lot of us who don't believe in God or don't believe in God anymore. And we have reasons, and I think sometimes those reasons are excuses, but sometimes they're very real. But one of the reasons that pops up over and over, one of the questions of our culture is if God is good and if God is all-powerful, why is there suffering in the earth? Why do I hurt? And I wonder if people blame God in an answer to that question. If we say, if, if there is a God out there, I'm mad at him. Now, the interesting thing that I've found is it's almost hard, hardwired into us to know there's a God out there. And so I know people who say they don't believe in God and they're mad at him. You cannot be mad at somebody you don't believe in. More appropriately, you just need to realign with him. Understand him differently. But I wondered, would the mothers and fathers in Bethlehem blame God? Would they say, where is he? And, and I stopped to think about this. And one of our interns pointed out, you know, that honestly, if anybody has ever had a right, I guess, to blame God for suffering, it would truly be these mothers and fathers in Bethlehem. I can't help but wonder the responses of the mothers and fathers in Bethlehem. So just walk down this road with me for a minute. Imagine that out of all the children killed, and we have no idea how many it would have been. I heard an estimate of 18 one time, but nobody would ever know. But let's say nine of those, in their grief, they sought God's comfort and his help. And they said, the Messiah was born, my child was taken away, but the Messiah will bring us all healing. God, bring me this healing. And let's say there are nine more who say Messiah was born and I don't care. He cost me my son. When he was born, Herod came to find him and killed my son in the process. I will never forgive this Messiah. I could understand where they'd come from with that. But I want to ask, I guess, the same question in a different way. Who's to blame for the death of those children? In fact, this answer, in a nutshell, responds to the larger question of who's to answer for all the suffering and sin that we just described earlier in the sermon. Is God tricking us, fooling us, deceiving us? Is he, is he saying he's good and loving and then just sending suffering to watch us or to toy with us? I don't, I don't think so at all. I just want to answer this question. Who was responsible for the grief of the fathers and mothers in Bethlehem? Was it God? Would they blame him? Would they be mad at him? Maybe. But who's to blame? And I'll tell you who's to blame. 
A man named Herod. A man. Flesh and blood. The image of God. Who forsook being the image of God so that he could try to be more like God. He wanted more power, more authority. He wanted no one to threaten him. He's just a man, but he forgot it. His name is Herod. Herod the Great. And under the moniker of his political power, his wealth, and his strength, he exerted his force in selfishness, and it hurt everybody around him. And people hurt people. Our choices hurt each other. But who's responsible for the suffering in the world today? It's not that God is bringing the suffering. It's that He created and He gave us will. And we create suffering with our choices. Or the devil creates suffering as he did with Job. Or evil in the heart of another man or in mine. King Herod. He killed his nephew Aristobulus. Why? Because Aristobulus was the high priest, but he became so popular, so good at his job, Herod felt threatened. He had him drowned in a swimming pool in Jericho at his family residence. In 29 BC, Herod killed his wife, Mariamne, because she had royal blood, and he saw her as a threat to his throne. In 7 BC, he killed his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, because he'd heard a rumor that they were plotting against him to take power from their father. In 4 BC, near the time of his own death, as one of his last acts on earth, he had his son Antipater killed for the same rumor. Who is responsible for the grieving in Bethlehem? A good God who chose to come and suffer with us or an angry man whose pride and rage, whose selfishness, has unleashed itself on people around him. King Herod called all the wise and respected elders of the people of Judah together to meet in Jericho. In the Hippodrome, the Hippodrome is basically just a big racetrack for chariots. Think about it as like Talladega. That's good for us in Mississippi. Herod invites the respected elders of Judea to the Hippodrome. Near the time of his death, he's ill He suspects that he won't recover. And I'll tell you what plagued him. What plagued him was thinking that when he died, the people of Judah would celebrate. That they would be so glad to see him go. That instead of mourning and grieving as they mourned at the death of the innocents in Bethlehem, they might celebrate. So to ensure that people would mourn, he called all the elders together. And when they gathered, he locked the doors and surrounded them with armed guards. And his command to the guards was that when they got word that he died, they were to slaughter the respected, beloved elders of Judah so that there would be grieving on the day of his death. That's who he was. Fortunately, somebody subverted his plan. And when he died and could no longer enforce his edict, they had the elders released. Who was responsible for the suffering in Bethlehem? I say it was a man named Herod and every soldier that said yes to him and enforced his edict. He plays the role of Pharaoh from the Old Testament, throwing the babies in the river. Yet there were no brave midwives to say no. Only soldiers who said yes. I think much of our suffering today 
It's caused by selfishness acted out. The reason this is so important to me is because when we're angry at God, we are cutting off our one channel of comfort and healing. Like the one person who could draw nearest to you and heal you in time. As pastor, I've watched many of you lose loved ones. And understandably, without any judgment, I've seen some of you grow angry or bitter at God and distance yourself. And I've seen others of you say, God, I don't understand a single thing that's happening, but you're my only hope. And I have watched you walk remarkably through your suffering. And I'm better for it. But the reason this is important is because if you stay angry at God, you are cutting off your one source of healing. So I ask it this way. Where was God when they hurt? And where is he when we hurt? And the answer is remarkable. Stop and think about this story in Bethlehem. While Rachel is weeping, where is God? And the answer is, he has chosen to be right in the middle of it. He did not have to be. He could have stayed far away in the throne room of heaven. He could have wept from a thousand miles away, but he chose not to. That's the whole power of the Christmas story, is that he chose to come right into the middle of it. His own decision. He wasn't swept up in it, called away in it. It's not that he found himself in circumstances he could not avoid. He chose to come to us and be right in the midst. He was the target of that execution, not those children. He fled and lived as an exile, as a refugee in Egypt until he returned. And if you or I might think for a minute, oh, but the mothers in Bethlehem lost their children and Mary did not lose hers. Yes, she did. He came so he could be taken. It just wasn't time yet. He had too much to teach, too much love to give, too many to raise from the dead, too much of an example to set. But he would not dodge the arrow of suffering. Rather, he'd be pierced on a cross and give his life as the example for all who suffer. That God's not chosen to be far from you when you grieve, but near to you. To walk in your steps, to feel your pain, to weep with Rachel. The Bible says in John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept as he stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. The Bible tells you because of the death and resurrection of Christ, that blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted and you will be one day we'll open our eyes in a new heaven and a new earth and we will be comforted and even today while we grieve we grieve with hope and purpose and none of us grieve alone and at the end of this sermon I want to speak to everybody here, but especially to those of you that are grieving. In your grief, I want you to know you have a good high priest and a comforter, a Christ who grieved with you. His mother, Mary, she understands your grief. She grieved as she watched her son taken. I want you to know that the truth is you and I will live in the middle of suffering entangled with hope until Christ returns. There, there is nothing we will invent that will fix it. We'll find the cure for cancer one day and another plague will arise among us. We'll fix one form of violence and another will spring up in its place. We will suffer together until Jesus comes. 
Because that is the nature of a kingdom that has been already inaugurated with the resurrection of Christ but will not be fulfilled until the return of Christ. We live in an old creation, suffering, groaning. And you and I are supposed to be the new creation in the middle of it, following Jesus. And so for those of you who suffer today, I want to tell you, you do not suffer alone. Christ is near you. And if there's anybody that came today to be with a mother, a friend, a family, or just because it's so close to Christmas, and you would say, Ben, I am that person who's distanced from God because of my grief, I'd like to ask you to reconsider. This Sunday morning, would you reconsider? Would you open your heart to a God that grieves with you and wants to comfort you? So this morning I ask you, is there anybody here who needs to take action on what you've heard or sung today? Is there anybody who's far from God and you need to give your life to Jesus Christ today? You want to be a believer. You'd like to be baptized and follow Christ the rest of your life. I'll be down in front of the church today and I'd love to receive you and share with you how you can pray and ask Christ to be the Lord of your life. Give him your future. But I think we have another purpose here today. I pray that someone will give their life to Christ, but I'm confident that many of you today are heavy with the weight of grief. And I just want you to know, I don't offer any quick fixes. I don't have any one-liners. I just want you to know that God knows what your pain is like and he cares about it. That you don't need to feel guilty of it, you need to take it to him. And I pray that one day, as in Jeremiah 16, you'd hear God's words to say, you can stop crying out, you can dry your tears, I'm giving you hope. Let's pray. Father, as a church, we respect the grief of our community, our country, our world, our sisters and brothers. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and be near them, that you would grant them great strength today. Father, I pray that your will would be done in each one of our lives, that we would listen for your voice and respond to you. God, that we would lay down our anger towards you and that we would run to you for healing. Father, I imagine with my church family that you grieve as you watch your good creation turn into a mess at the hands of our selfishness and our anger. We grieve with you, Father, over the hurting, over the sin, over the brokenness and pain. And I ask God that your Holy Spirit would do a powerful work in our church this morning as you bring hope. I ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.